You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hi, welcome to the No Low Ballers podcast. I'm Logan Medish of High Caliber History, your host. I'm with the Go Wild and Gunbroker.com crew. And in today's episode, we're talking handgun history and how you actually used to be able to fire a gun using a piece of fool's gold. So stay tuned. That's what's coming up in the show. If you're not already subscribed, what are you doing? Come on, subscribe to the show. You know you want to. Uh, so guys, welcome to the show. Um, appreciate you all joining me around the table. We're going to talk about handgun evolution, so early guns, uh, flintlocks, wheel locks, hand cannons, because, you know, cannon and hand are words that should totally go together, right? Well, that's why it evolved into hand gone, because, you know, your hand's gone. <laughs> hand <laughs> gone, yes, exactly. So, Alan, tell us, tell us about hand cannons. Well, you know, I mean, as the name implies, take a cannon. Mm-hmm. Kind of chop the end off and leave the little bit of the, the combustion back. And that was kind of your first firearm. You know, they would, some packing, some arrows, called it good. Well, like anything else, you shrink it down. But uh, eventually the handgun evolved into kind of a, a small cannon on the end of a stick. I mean, it's about as simple of the evolution as it gets. Fired off with either a long match or a piece of you know red hot iron to the touch hole, and there you go. So handgun really just meant that it was held in one hand, although they usually had little hooks on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're a competitive shooter, you know, either in the three gun or the bear or uh, Bianchi world, you're familiar with the little wings we put on the guns to jam them right up against the barricades. Same concept. Take your little hook, put it over the, the buttress or, you know, whatever you're shooting from and light off your handgun. But it's a little bit more involved than what we think of today as a handgun. So basically, the more things change, the more they stay the same is what you're saying, right? <laughs> Good ideas are timeless. <laughs> That's exactly so right. What kind of size are we talking about, though? I mean, you're talking about holding something on a stick. Is, yeah. it just, is it just a rifle that's cut down? Is it is it totally engineered in smaller calibers? or If you think about the original one, erase ideas of what you think of as a gun right now and think of more like a flower pot. Because it really was kind of a, a large bulbous area that kind of necked down and then would maybe open up a little bit. Because the first guns didn't shoot shot or bullets. They literally were arrow projectors until they realized that arrows suck. Coming out of a, a, then you a just load base. them with anything that's hard, heavy, and hurts. There you, you know, go. So. Yeah, a handful of gravel, you know, some chain that's laying around, uh, whatever. <laughs> it, I mean, it works. Uh, so really, it's like a little flower vase. And then, you know, as we kind of joked about, it's something you don't really want to hold in your hand. So someone had the great idea of, well, let's put it on a stick and at least get it away from our face. And yep. there you go. Yep. Yeah. And then once they they evolved a little bit, you get away from more of the big flower pot shape. And, and they look more like you stuck an actual cannon in a dryer and and shrunk it and but still putting it on a stick so there's no ergonomics whatsoever for any of it it's not that's just not where people were at with them at that point it was just you know like look at early uh, airplanes and stuff you know all the weird and wacky shit that people tried that we look at it today and we're like 
how in the world do they think that was going to work? They were doing the same thing yeah. with guns, you know. Because and, and gunpowder would have been, what, about the 11th century? So some 10,000 or 1,000 something. Yeah, and even sometimes even a little earlier yeah. is what some of the records get to, like yeah. the Chinese in the 900s. Gunpowder is a fascinating topic. No one really knows where it came from or when. Yeah. It just is there. It was a gift from the gods. That's all we know. Yeah. But still to this day. Even if we use kind of that year 1000 as a mark, it was what, 14-ish or 15-ish before we saw the first true, what we would think of as a handgun. And right. that was out of Russia of all places, right? Yeah. And, and, and we start off with matchlocks. You know, you hinted briefly, you know, lighten things with a piece of lit cord or a piece of hot iron. So match cord, it, it is a, a piece of cord that, that is dipped in a combustible and you light it and it stays lit. And it's mounted into your gun. And when you pull the trigger, you know, it touches into the flash pan and sets off your your powder uh, charge. Um, but, of course, that doesn't work when you're in the rain, mm-hmm. you know, because you've got your lit match in the rain. Uh, you can't hide it under your coat because you're going to catch your coat on fire. Um, and at night, it's going to give your position away because people are just going to look for the little glowing matches. Um, so it, it was an incredibly simple design. Uh, but it was a really limiting design. Well, and you've also got a pan of powder next to a lip match all the time. So even if the weather's great and you're not out hunting or anything else, you, you know, you've still got potential disaster right there. And, and that was the same mechanism for rifles at the time, right? So all of those limitations applied to rifles as yes. well as handguns. Yep. Yeah, at this point in the evolutionary process, the handgun looked, instead of a 46, 50-inch long rifle, you're now looking at like a 20 to 30-inch long kind of mini rifle because the barrel lengths were still pretty what 10 to i'm trying to remember 10 to 15 inches they're still pretty yeah, long they're still long pretty long yeah. yes exactly yeah. exactly so obviously i know projectile and charge has a lot to do with your effective range with one of these things but what are we talking about like 50 feet 50 yards what are we shooting i need you to define effective do you mean if you hit something it's going to do the job or just hit something because there's two pretty different numbers for yes. these guns. yes <laughs> um i mean from the distance of hitting something most were smooth bores so you're shooting even later down the road a patched round ball out of a smooth bore you know it's it's a knuckleball basically uh but ballistic distance i gotta turn to the expert on this one well and you know i've shot a lot of cool weird old guns i've never shot a hand cannon um, you know, so I, I, I really couldn't say what the effective range on something like that is going to be. And it, of course, it also is going to depend on what you've loaded the hand cannon yep. with, too. Yeah. You know, nails are going to fly different than rocks are going to fly different than pieces of chain. And so I, I don't know. Um, my guess is you know, I wouldn't want to be within 50 feet of it, you know, um, but but I really couldn't say what the yeah. effective range of a hand cannon is so still in the true sense of a pistol today or you know a handgun today it's more close quarters yeah yeah Yeah. absolutely and that's kind of where why the handgun has become so romanticized both in pop culture and just within the gun communities themselves you know it's um if you're in the military it's it's your last line you know hopefully you've if you've gone to your handgun bad things have happened if you're law enforcement or the local village constable you know it's it's your Basically, it's the law, you know, in, in, in that day. It's also the first piece that you really customize. Really, until the modern sporting rifle came out, you know, customizing your long guns wasn't really done outside of a few, um, you know, native cultures. 
where the handgun has always been customizable. You know, you've got the stories of the World War II GIs getting clear stocks so they can put pictures of their loved ones and sweethearts on the gun. Yeah, not always a loved one or a sweetheart. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Um, you know, you've got the guys shaving off the front sight so it doesn't snag. You've got, you know, the, the fit specials where you're cutting off the front of the trigger guard. So handguns have always been a very personal weapon. And part of it is that effective distance, is that it's not a rifle where you're taking a shot at a, you know, a German soldier 100-plus yards away. It's you're within conversational distance probably. So initially, with these hand cannons, who, who was carrying them? Was it like an officer thing? Was it like a gentleman's gun? Was it people who couldn't afford a rifle? What would be the purpose of buying or using one of those? Or was it just a cool thing that didn't really have a practical per- purpose? Yeah, that's you know, and that's a great question. I, early on, I I really don't think there was much of a practical purpose. I think it was trying to figure out what's going to work, you know, and, and so, well, you, you carry the hand cannon, you know, cause we're, you know, you've got guys wearing armor and different mm-hmm. things. And you know, so you're, you're not really sure what things are going to be effective against what, so the idea of, all right, well, these kind of troops are going to carry this kind of firearm because they're, I don't think we were there yet yeah. uh, because the technology was still so incredibly new and so uh, unproven too. It's more of a psychological weapon because mm, at, the, sure. at the end of the day, the, the the longbow was still the king here. Crossbows were still pretty predominant for smaller portable weapons. Um, but the, you know, the loud bang, the big flash of fire, the giant puff of smoke, I think hand cannons, at least in combat, probably did more to spook cavalry than necessarily mm. shoot the troops on the back of them. Interesting. And I guess swords were still super popular for close quarters. Sure. Yeah. Especially yeah. in the early development. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I mean, we've gone, we gone, we went from gunpowder being kind of a mysterious thing around, you know, the 900, 1000 year mark to, um, you know, handguns in just three or 400 years. But for a lot of that development, it's still trying to figure out the magic of the, of the powder. Yeah. Because again, it was uh, most popular, or most historians, um, popular theory, it was developed in China. Less as explosive, more as a accelerant or, you know, just fire starter. Spanish Moors, potentially the Islamic world through the trade routes, eventually brought it into Europe where the West, Western Europeans, especially the Germanic states, really jumped onto it and fell in love with it, evolved it from there. But, you know, a lot of it was just trying to figure out the magic of the, of the black powder at this point, let alone how to put that into use. And again, we had years of trying to make them arrow launchers. And then, obviously, the the big easy things, you know, casting a giant bronze or cast iron cannon was a lot easier than it's like anything else. The technology is great, big. Miniaturizing it is always the tough part. So, yeah. to Logan's point, even by 1500, people are still not entirely sure how to use these things. So, what was the next evolution after the matchlock? Yeah. So after matchlocks, and and this is where firearms development is so interesting. You know, we were trying to figure out, you know, how how complicated or how easy can we make things. As Alan was saying, you know, it's it's easy big. How do you make it small? And so you go from the matchlock, which is something that is very simple. You know, it's a it's burning cord on a uh, you know on a hammer, and then we go to something incredibly complicated, and that's the wheel lock, and it's so incredibly complicated, um, like watchmakers. Are, are who are making mm-hmm. these early ones because they are so intricate. And, and the way the wheel lock works is that the mechanism uh, has a giant steel wheel on it uh, and you wind it up. So you have to have a separate spanner wrench that you crank the wheel and put spring tension on it. And then when you pull the trigger, you have the hammer coming down, which is holding a piece of pyrite, fool's gold, and the sparks are created when the trigger pulls, it releases the spring tension, uh, and the pyrite 
hits the steel wheel and the friction between the two causes the sparks and that's what ignites your powder charge. Um, and that is so much more complicated uh, than a matchlock. Um, and, and, and there are a lot of shortcomings to that. You know, if you lose your spanner wrench, you've got no way to wind it. You know, if, if you break that spring on the inside, mm-hmm. you've got no way uh, to, to fire your gun. So, you know, on the plus side, you, you don't have a lit match uh, that, you're, that you're having to carry around near your powder. But on the other hand, you've also now got a really intricate uh, ignition system. This is where we start to see the handgun go from kind of an oddity into that personalized weapon. Because, again, the watchmakers really were the ones making the first wheel locks. So it's very expensive. Um, They're not just cranking them out mass-producing. You know, everyone's hand-built, so we're starting to see some of the artistry in here. So you're getting the very highly embellished, you know, wood stocks and, you know, frame to them. You're getting a lot of engraving into the metal. Um, ivory, mother of pearl. Ivory, mother of pearl. Of... Oddly, we haven't yet really started developing sighting systems yet. Go weird, you know, whatever. But um, it's it, it's an investment now. It's definitely something that, that you're going to, if you're an owner, you're probably very wealthy. You want to show it off. So this is where, again, that romanticism and love affair with the handgun as your personal weapon really, I think, kicked off. I think you could almost consider the early, you know, wheel lock guns to be the earliest barbecue guns. Yeah. Um, if you guys are familiar with that term, you know, uh, originates, I would say, in Texas of guys with really uh, nice engraved, maybe nickel plated guns with mother of pearl handles, you know, wearing them in an open carry holster. You're wearing with the barbecue, showing them off to everybody. Right. S- That's some exotic leather. Really. Some, yep. Right. Really nice tooled leather yep. and stuff. So it's, you know, these these early ornate mm-hmm. uh, wheel lock guns, you know, guys are, are wearing them around their castle or whatever, you know, showing them off um, because they're not fun to shoot. There's no ergonomics to them whatsoever. I mean, it's, it's, it is a straight design. So you're kind of holding it in your hand, you know, angled like this. Oh well, yeah, that's fun to shoot all day long. You know, kind of looks like a two by four. <laughs> with 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 a with a, with, a, with a wheel mechanism around it, yeah, yeah. Well, and there's also a regional pride to it as well because sure. the the designs were very geographic. The French had a certain way that they did it. The Ger- the Germanic states had a certain way. The English. Um, so it wasn't like today where you can buy the same old Remington 700 as everybody and then, oh, I put a proof research barrel on it and I put a Geisley trigger in it. Where here you've got your Italian style wheel lock. So mm-hmm. you know there's the the reliability brings a little bit of that regional pride in as well. But if you're not in your region and it breaks, you know, there's probably no one who can fix it. Right. Take yeah. Take it home. <laughs> exactly. And then that, you know, and that ties again back into the fact that, you know, yeah, you've got something that's less dangerous to the user in the wheel lock, but it's a hell of a lot easier to fix a broken match lock than yeah. it is to fix a broken wheel lock. So actually there was one person in history that would disagree with that statement. Maximilian the first, the Holy Roman emperor uh-huh. uh, from the Habsburg family, from what I can at this point tell issued the first gun ban. Uh, he outlawed wheel locks because he felt they were too dangerous because again, it's held under spring tension. You know, there's a release and a lock a trigger, but if that should fail, it would, it would spin up and could go off. And there was a, uh, an incident of a wheel lock going off in a public place and injuring some people. So Maximilian went full Biden and threw out the uh, the gun ban on him. You went full Biden. You never go full <laughs> Biden. <laughs> now, come on, guys. You've got to subscribe to the channel. If, if, if you know that reference and you're not already subscribed, you need to be subscribed. That's going to be the yeah. clip. That's going to be the, the YouTube short. As, as you said, like, never go full Biden. So, so these... They they still weren't able to be used in the rain, 
you, you still have to keep powder dry, right? I mean, you're going to have to keep powder dry for Until another few caseless. hundred years. Yeah. 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 And even if you think about striking rocks together for a campfire, if the rocks are wet, they don't. So yeah. it's the same concept. I mean, that's essentially what we're doing is a mechanized way of striking two different so, materials together. So the functionality or the practicality of using it for self-defense or for battles probably gone but people like the idea i'm guessing is this a dueling pistol would people duel with these was it like you certainly could yeah yeah uh you certainly could and you know again i think a lot of it goes back to you know people are still trying to figure out what they are you know and there's we we still see a lot of it in the industry today you know a a new make and model comes out that you know people look at i really don't know what the hell i'd use that for but i gotta have one so are these wheel locks still just your jamming whatever stuff down the barrel that you can or are there standardized calibers Not, now yes and no you know you've still got large smooth bore ones that are available that you can cram whatever you want down it um and you will also have ones that are going to have a specific bullet mold with them you know and, and you're going to be shooting a very specific uh caliber projectile out of it so, so you're saying <clears throat> specific bullet mold. Did most of these guns come with literally a mold that people are pouring lead into yes, at home? Yes, because there is no standardized caliber. You know, like you know, there's 50 caliber, 45, 32. It doesn't exist. You, your caliber is whatever diameter hole the guy who made your gun made it, and so he's going to make a mold to fit that barrel. Yeah, so that's the other thing. If you lose your spanner wrench, you're out. If you lose your bullet mold, you're out. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I mean, exactly. you're, they're hand-forming metal around a mandrilla with heat and fire still, and then bands to keep it together. So, you know, a 50 cal could be anywhere from probably 40 to 60. Yeah, even the same manufacturer, I'm guessing. If oh, the same the same craftsman, one barrel after another, there's going to be a, just yeah. a variance in there. Wow. Yeah, the gun made on Monday isn't going to be anything like the gun made on Friday. You know? so, so then what, what comes after the wheel lock? Well, after the wheel lock, we get into the umbrella term of flintlock. Um, and there are a lot of nuances that fall in under uh, the umbrella term of flintlock. And, you know, we, we could do an entire episode just on uh, the, the different nuances and the evolution of flintlock. Because in, in terms of firearm ignition systems, until we get to, you know, centerfire that we have today that I don't really see going anywhere anytime soon, uh, flintlock has the longest service life. Uh, out of all of the different types of ignition systems uh, that we have. And, and for, for fear of running out of time uh, on our episode, I, I think we may have to make this a two-parter in order for us to get into some, some real uh, purposeful discussion onto the flintlock. Um, but, but even with that in mind, you know, the, the wheel lock and, and the match lock designs and everything, and, and even some flintlock stuff, um, you know, they, you can, guys are still buying those yeah. left and right, you know, and there are some people still making reproductions of them and stuff. Um, and so it, you know, you, you can find listings for stuff like that on Gumberg or Sir Alan, I'll, you know, yeah. I'll come to you. What, what kind of stuff, um, if, if this is the era that interests you, sure. you know, what are people, what's available to them? Yeah. Well, I'm going to work backwards a little bit, you know, t- kind of start with the flintlocks. Cause as you mentioned, you can still get authentics. I mean, that was in action till the early 1800s yep. realistically until the uh, percussion percussion cap really came along 
So this was a you know hundreds and hundreds of years where this was the default. Um, so you can get you know reproduction, build it yourself kits, which are kind of fun to do for you know hundreds of dollars. Um, authentic antiques, um, three thousand is not a not an outrageously low price to be to be found for them. So there's there's a number of 1,700, 1,800 guns out there still uh, with flintlock mechanisms. Prices start to get a little higher as we go back. Um, so even today, you know, the wheel lock, plenty of working. I don't know if I'd load them up and fire them myself, but still <laughs> yeah. working wheel lock designs out there. Uh, I took a look this morning. We've got a number of uh, Germanic wheel locks, which was kind of the, the center of that yeah, that's uh, the sweet spot for it them. It really is. I mean, you think of the, the Swiss watchmakers, the Austrian watchmakers. It makes sense that that, that region... Um, for one that still functions, you can get into them for 6,000, uh, for a real basic kind of a tradesman's type gun. If you want something that's a little bit more ornate, a little more embellished, 10,000, which, you know, for, for a working antique like that still isn't, I don't think too crazy. Where things get a little crazier is if we go back to some of the matchlock pieces or, um, some of the arquebuses. Um, and I think I'm saying that right. Arquebus. I think it is. It's one of those words yeah. where you see it written way more than you see it said or hear it said. Yeah. So so I looked. We had a, a Japanese arquebus from the 18th century, um, very embellished. Um, you know, I'll say 61 caliber, 61-ish caliber, <laughs> um, and it you know had a price on it of 1,300 dollars to start. You know, I'm not sure if they have a reserve or where it's going to go from there. But mm-hmm. still, again, you're getting into a um, authentic antique with a great deal of history. Um, again, we're pretty sure gunpowder started in that part of the world. So. Um, you don't necessarily think about Japan and China as being, you know, great firearms development companies, but a lot of the early history did start there. So, um, that's a really cool piece. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you were talking, you know, six, $10,000 and stuff like that, you know, with, with the flintlock guns and stuff. And that, that in some instances is like dirt cheap, mm-hmm. right. To get into it, you know, cause there, there are a lot of folks that are still, actively collecting those guns uh they you know the the heyday may be waning a little bit in terms of the collectors for those but i mean it it's not unusual i've been to some some you know like kentucky rifle association shows and stuff and you know and those guns you know guys would be like oh you know we're looking for 10 grand you know guy not bad an eye well this one it's twenty five thousand. guy not bad an eye you know and it, it depends on who the maker is and you know and so it's it it's similar today to if you've got something, you know, that it has been completely redone by, you know, Terran Tactical or it's been totally worked over by Wilson Combat or Nighthawk Custom or, you know, any of those. Uh, or it's been engraved by a specific engraver, you know, uh, well, Weldon Lister out of Texas did this or whatever, you know, and that's going to command a premium uh, on some of these guns far more than just, you know, the, the plain Jane version of that gun. Well, and to your point, flintlock covers such a grand territory. I mean, you could be looking at a, you know, good where we are, the Kentucky rifle from the, mm-hmm. the Revolutionary War era, certainly going to bring a different price point than, say, a 1500s Japanese, still a flintlock, but just such a radical difference in age and evolution and um, really history to go with it. So the, the prices can be all over the place. But if you're looking to get into some collectible antique firearms, the, the price points aren't crazy yet. L- at least you can find items that aren't too crazy. If you want to drop six figures, you know, there's plenty of those out there too. <laughs> we can help you do it. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so quick question at the end here. There's three different types of mechanisms that we're talking about here. What is going to be the quickest to actually fire? Because I think that's the the biggest leap between today's actions and back then is that it's almost instantaneous when you pull the trigger now 
opposed to back then you're waiting for an ignition, a strike, and a fire, and all that stuff to happen. See, I think that's that's a common misconception that people have. Um, if we'll talk flintlock here for this, uh, if if loaded correctly, your ignition should be almost instantaneous. Okay, and and that has everything to do with the powder charge that's in the pan of your flintlock. And so I've got this. Uh, this lock that's been taken off of one of the guns. And so your powder charge goes in here. Um, and then this is your frizzen. It gets closed over. And then when the hammer falls, it strikes the steel face of the frizzen, ignites the powder, goes through the touch hole, and ignites your main charge. If you have too little powder in the pan, you run the risk of not igniting your main charge because there's not enough to spark. If you have too much powder in your pan, then you're going to find yourself in a situation uh, where it's it's almost like uh, um, like lighting the fuse on a piece of dynamite. You know, it's going to be more of a slow burn because black powder burns much slower than our modern smokeless powder. Um, and so it's it's like Goldilocks. You know, you don't want it to be too little. You don't want it to be too much. You have to find the right charge of powder, the right amount of grains, which could be two, three, four grains of powder. Um depending on the gun and they're going to be gun specific too right you know so there's there's nothing universal in this era um but but if you've got the charge dialed in correctly on your gun it should be very very easy uh, to get that charge to go off almost instantaneous like that so cool yeah um, that's news to me so yeah and that's uh, that that is it's a common misconception that people have thinking that you know just because it's old it's it's so much delayed you know and i think that's because a lot of what we see in movies you know you see guys they're not necessarily running the most efficient charges in those guns because they're not actually depending on their lives uh, or their livelihood for that gun uh, in order to go off like that. And a big old flash is very dramatic in slow motion on film, too. Right, exactly. And the powder itself can have a little bit of an impact as well because it's a different powder in the priming pan than it is in the barrel. It's a much finer grain. Um, it's almost talcum-like with its consistency because you want it to ignite quickly and burn quickly as opposed to the bigger kernels that are going to go slower. In the early days, especially, that's still probably being hand-formulated. You know, the, the legend of how guns came to be is that there was a, a Germanic monk named Black Berthold who was grinding up some gunpowder in his mortar and pestle, and as sometimes happened with the old stuff, it went off, and it launched his pestle across the room. And he went, you know, what if I did that on purpose? And that's the legend of how <laughs> guns came to be. You know, it's been kind of somewhat disproven as an urban legend, but, you know, you know how it goes. When the legend becomes fact, you print the legend. Regardless, you're looking at the powders that are going to have inconsistencies all over the place. So, you know, if you've got, if you're buying your powder from the same guy and it's the right consistency and it's not too humid and you've got the right amount in there and, you know, you don't have, more, you know, there's a lot of cons- a lot of variables. But, yeah, if you've got it dialed in right, you yeah, know, it's pretty, it, pretty consistent. you got to make sure your flint is still sharp. you got to make sure the geometry on that flint is correct so that when it hits the steel face of your frizzen, it's actually going to create the sparks. You know, the flints are, you know, they're disposable commodities. It's it's essentially the equivalent of, of primers. You know, uh, except that, you know, a flint may be good for 15 or 20 shots, you know, before you're going to have to nap the edge on it again uh, to get things back where you want. So there's a ton of variables. um, But if done right, you know, you should have almost instantaneous ignition of your powder charge, um, which is not something people always think about, you know, so. Well, we probably should wrap it up before you say touch hole again. (laughs) 
Well, you know, at least yeah, so, that for a little while. <laughs> yeah. So we've got touch hole, but then you know we, we can also you know the the hammer is also called a cock, uh, mm. and when you get into percussion stuff, you know you've got the the cone is also called a nipple. So you know we've got touch holes, cocks, and nipples. Right. Now, well, this episode is that's so the, gonna. Yeah. That's the title of this episode. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, awesome. Well, guys, if, if you've made it this far in the show, we appreciate you being here. Um, make sure you're subscribed on, on your platform of choice. Review the show for us. That would mean the world to us. Um, again, you know, we, we appreciate you all being here uh, and tuning into the show. Guys, thanks for joining me around the table and being on this episode. Uh, we will see everybody here on the next episode of the No Low Ballers podcast. 